Would you turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 51? Yes, Jeremiah has 51 chapters. It's a lot of chapters. Uh, And we're going to be reading verses 5 through 10. Jeremiah 51, uh, starting verse 5 through verse 10. It says this. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts, But the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take the balm of her pain, for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go, each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. O Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Two truths. We're presented with two gloriously good realities in this text. That if Babylon's that Babylon's evil was never outside of God's control. Because if it were, that would be terrifying and hopeless. But Babylon, despite all their arrogance and wickedness, only ultimately served God's purposes. They were, as this text says, a golden cup in the Lord's hand. That's the first truth. Here's the second. The second reality is that the evil of Babylon will be judged and stopped. They will not go unrestrained and they will not go unpunished. God's justice will prevail. And as the text says, this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. So though God used Babylon, he does not endorse their sin and he will judge them for it. And we, we cherish both of these realities on their own, both of these truths, God's sovereign goodness and his justice. But they do tend to trouble us a little bit when stood side by side like this. God both uses Babylon and judges Babylon. And we could replace Babylon specifically with the broader category of evil in general. It's a kind of paradox of our faith. Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciles the two sides of a similar paradox. And he responded, I don't need to reconcile friends. And his pithy response is actually more profound than just a dismissive joke. Because it reveals something about our desire to reconcile realities. Reconciliation actually requires that things be distinct. Like friends are distinct. But what that questioner really wanted from Spurgeon was for those things to become some kind of uniform monstrosity. But Spurgeon helps us see the error by imagining these realities as people. Mashing two people into the same person would be a Frankensteinish terror. 
But to reconcile them is to allow them their distinct personhood, to coexist on friendly terms. And I too, I believe this is how we are to relate to paradoxes of our faith as well. Because rigid rationality tries to create things that need not or should not be. And doubt makes these truths enemies. But faith trusts them as friends. In one of my favorite books called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, who was a latecomer to the Christian faith, he explains his journey to conversion. And he points out that it was the skeptics' attacks on Christianity that actually made him begin to doubt his doubts. Because their contradictory attacks made him realize that Christianity must be a most extraordinary thing. Because one accused it of being too pessimistic, and another would accuse it of being too optimistic. He says one rationalist had hardly done calling Christianity a nightmare before another began calling it a fool's paradise. This puzzled me. The charges seemed inconsistent. Christianity could not at once be a black mask on a white world and also a white mask on a black world. He goes on to cite a few more examples, though he says there are 50 more. And he says, I began to think, what could this astonishing thing be like, which people were so anxious to contradict that in doing so, they did not mind contradicting themselves. And one explanation he offers is that it might be an odd-shaped thing. But there is another explanation, that it might be the right shape. Perhaps, he says, this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing, the center Perhaps, after all, it is Christianity that is sane and all its critics that are mad in various ways. And later in the book, he actually comes to praise the paradoxes of the faith, saying the church has always kept its truths that seem intention side by side like two strong colors, like the red and white upon the shield of St. George. It has always had a healthy hatred of pink. It hates that combination of two colors, which is the feeble expedient of the philosophers. And he calls this the thrilling romance of orthodoxy. And I love that because we Christians should love the rich complexity of our faith and its refusal to be bullied or bargained with into simplistic compromises and boring respectable formulas. We should be humbled by wonder because mystery is plentiful when approaching our God. That's part of what it means that he is God and we are not. Our shallow, arrogant culture jumps to the conclusion that if something doesn't make sense to me, then that must mean it does not make sense at all. And this is a tragically small view of reality and an even more tragically large view of ourselves. We were made for awe and wonder to seek truth so big that only God can fully comprehend it. And this quest, when taken in humility, draws us near to God rather than driving us away. Wonder is a large part of worship. Treasuring what is remarkably revealed while welcoming those vast, mysterious, untamable truths. To wonder is to courageously stand beneath our boundless God in defiance of our fear of our own smallness. We are invited into a daring hope. What we would all want if we dared to hope for such a thing is for all evil to be vanquished. But not only that, but for it to also be judged with vengeance and justice for no evil to go unpunished. 
But in our deepest longings, we want even more than that. For all the wreckage and in, it, in, the, in its wake of destruction to not just be a waste. For there to be no for there not to be senseless collateral damage that amounts to nothing more than the thoughtless chaos of inconsiderate idolaters. In the wake of all the carnage of evil, we wanted to mean something, to amount to something, to contribute to a greater purpose and glory. If we dared to hope for such a thing. Near the end of the Lord of the Rings, there's this moving scene where Sam wakes up and sees Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And our beloved Hobbit, our beloved Hobbit Sam is surprised in this scene to see how things are far better than he anticipated. And he asks not just if good things are going to come true, but if sad things are going to come untrue, which is a, his humble way of hoping an even greater kind of hope that sees the curse not only canceled, but actually rolled back. And it's a beautiful hope, but it's not exactly precise the way he says it, which is okay. This is Sam speaking. He's a humble hobbit suddenly struck with the joy of renewed hope. But to say untrue, at least the way we commonly use that word, would mean that it didn't actually happen which is not J.R.R. Tolkien's fullest expression of what will happen to sad things. They do not get wiped away, but transformed. When Tolkien wants to give a more robust expression of this hope, it's not found in the mouth of a hobbit, but in the creation story of the elves. In the Silmarillion, the creator is a singer, and he has his other, other creatures commissioned to sing with him. And one of those angelic creatures named Melkor begins to sing a loud, vain, repetitive song of his own with little harmony and utterly at variance with the creator's song. But the story says, it seemed that the most triumphant notes of that song were taken by the other and woven into its own pattern. The creator then says to that evil singer, thou Melkor will discover all the secret thoughts of thy mind and will perceive that they are but a part of the whole and tributary to its glory. So the creator, instead of simply eliminating all demonic dissonance, he actually uses it to amplify the beauty of the celestial music by bringing it into greater harmony of the whole. So he not only thwarts the devil's attempts, but actually makes him ultimately work against himself. And this is an even greater hope than sad things becoming untrue, that they become unwasted parts of a greater truth. For instance, Jesus' resurrection did not make his death untrue. It made it glorious. And here is the grand seed planted for our understanding and our hope. We do not have all the answers, but we have of how, of how this, this really incredible mystery could be solved and possibly true. But through the gospel, we catch a glorious glimpse of God's ability to incorporate and reframe evil into the cosmic story of redemption. He has done it at the central tenet of our faith at the cross. Such an astounding hope is the core of our faith. God's most wonderful artistry is his ability to transform evil and deceit and ugliness into something good and true and beautiful. 
There is glory arrived at through the discord and through the pain that is greater than it would be otherwise. There is a beatific vision, as theologians say, that is so exquisite that it vindicates all the ugliness. There is a reality so wondrous that it makes it all worth the trouble. And that sounds naive. Sounds too good to be true, I know. But we have this big of a God. In fact, this is one of the tests of our faith. If the God you believe in is the real God or some smaller, weaker imitation. It's a mystery, but we know he is able. We have seen such a thing in the gospel. In the Bible, the word mystery does not mean something unknowable. It means something that's unknown until the answer is revealed. The gospel is called a mystery a number of times, but one that we are now on the revelation side of. In other words, it was unguessable. You couldn't have guessed it. It's uniquely glorious. But the Old Testament saints, like people like Abraham and and Moses and David, the book of Hebrews tells us they hoped in that mystery. Even though they were on the other side of the revelation, they, they knew that there was an answer, a resolution coming that would be better and more satisfying than they ever could have imagined or hoped. And guess what? They were right. This wasn't naive Pollyanna, pie-in-the-sky, unfounded hope simply because they didn't know how it would all work out. But it was founded on the character and on the goodness of God and his boundless creativity and his providential power as well as his profound wisdom and awe-inspiring love. The most deplorable sin ever committed was in God's plan. Acts 4 says to God, Truly, in this city where there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That text says that when the powers of this world were at their worst, plotting and committing the murder of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, They had not slipped out of God's grasp. They had not escaped his control. They were unwittingly doing his most glorious bidding in their grandest sin. In this most spectacular sin, sin was defeated, vanquished. The most good came through the worst evil. And this is enough to lift our thoughts to what else God is capable of. Here we have the substance of things hoped for. It does not untangle all the knots, but it gives us a glorious glimpse of what is possible with our God. A profound picture of the power and victory and awesome grace of God. But here we must let the scriptures balance us out, lest we falsely assume that this glorious hope means evil is somehow a good thing. It would be easy to accidentally slip down that slope and say, if evil and suffering are used by God, then let's not get in his way or waste our time by trying to stop it or lament it. But that would be a misapplication of this truth because that is not the biblical response. That's why Jeremiah in particular is so helpful in this regard because this man knew how to lament and he knew how to labor for justice. He cried out to God regarding injustice and suffering. 
And he cried out to people to amend their evil deeds and learn the ways of righteousness, all while knowing how great his God really is. That he is not hindered in his sovereign plans, and his glory is served both by Israel and by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar and by Jeremiah. His glory is served by both the betrayer Judas and the beloved John. But Judas must still be warned and rebuked, and John must still be blessed. Jeremiah holds both of these realities, the the white and the black, side by side without letting them get muddled into dirty gray. And we will too this morning, as we look at this text, by looking at, at both of these truths, God's sovereignty over evil and God's judgment of evil, as well as his surprising mercy. So Jeremiah says that Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. So he's a golden cup in in the Lord's hand. And then later in in this chapter, in verse 20, God says to Babylon, you are my hammer and my weapon of war. With you I break nations in pieces. With you I destroy kingdoms. So in both of those analogies, the golden cup and the hammer, they are an instrument in God's hand. And as I've meditated on on this, I've been very encouraged by Jeremiah's view of evil, or I should say the view God gave Jeremiah of evil. Because in this age where even Christians, maybe especially Christians, are succumbing to anxiety regarding the godlessness and evil in the world, becoming a looming paranoia, a nervous panic, we forget the truths of Jeremiah and and what he was taught. And when we do, we can let the ominous air of evil form the atmosphere around us, fogging up our eyes and and soaking into our emotions. We become terrorized by every rumor, worry forming a, a white noise that deadens reality. Because if you're paying attention, you will see evil, a lot of it. And how do you live with that? let alone live with love and peace. You you must let your heart be trained by the truth. Evil is not all-consuming. It is not omnipotent. It is not omnipresent. It is limited. Much, much, much more limited than our God. The evil of Babylon that had been conquering kingdoms, including the people of God, and and destroyed their temple. It had limits, as well as a beginning. And it, most importantly, will have an end. Babylon was not as it seemed, an uncontrolled and uncontrollable evil. It was a hammer in the hand of God. It was a carefully commanded judgment, commanded by God the God over all. And when God first called Jeremiah, if you remember back in chapter one, he gave him a vision about Babylon. What was that vision? You remember? A boiling pot poured in a particular direction. In other words, it was contained and it was directed. This cleared away the fog for Jeremiah. He did not naively ignore evil. He faced it as must we, but God's vision allowed him to not be intimidated by it. We, can make, we can't let evil make our heads so heavy that we never look up. We must lift our eyes and see God, the God who is over it all and who will use it to bring good. 
And I believe this is one of the most extraordinary truths we are promised and called to believe. One of the greatest things about the gospel, that God uses evil sinners to accomplish his good purposes. He is at work in big ways we cannot see, as well as many ways that we can see if we look in the right ways. But if we don't allow ourselves to be shaped by this sovereign wisdom and goodness of God, we will be handicapped in our life of faith. We will be deprived of strength and power to live open and responsive to all that comes our way. We will be closed to the adventure of Christ's mission and the joy of his calling and unresponsive to glimmers of, of hope and love shining through. Eugene Peterson once wrote, if we forget that the newspapers are footnotes to scripture and not the other way around, we will finally be afraid to get out of bed in the morning. Too many of us spend far too much time with the editorial page and not nearly enough with the prophetic vision. We get our interpretation of politics and economics and morals from journalists when we should only be getting information. The meaning of the world is most accurately given to us by God's word. I think he hits the nail on the head. We underestimate God and we overestimate evil. We don't see what God is doing, so we conclude that he's doing nothing. And we see everything that evil is doing, and we think that it's in control of everyone and everything. But we must get our meaning and interpretation of reality from our God. He must be our teacher so that we can be brave and mighty, untemptable, undeceivable, unintimidated by evil. Living alive and awake to the presence of God and the reality of God among us, living out our calling as his image bearers and as his body, responsive to his work in the world and his work in us. And this kind of life only comes through a thoroughgoing trust in his word. Trusting what we do not see with physical eyes, but only with the eyes of faith. And especially if we're going to love in this world, love God well, but also love this world. Loving it not with a consuming need love, but with a gracious gifting love. Loving in this way through the darkness and the hardness without being hardened or darkened ourselves. We can only do that. We can only look evil full in its face and not be frightened by it or repelled by it if we see beyond it. And know that its evil is contained and directed. If we have a vision of God that is so great, it's, that is as great as the scriptures portray, then we will not retreat or shut down. We won't become babies or cynics. We won't be burdened with self-pity or dismissively closed off to goodness. We will have eyes to see the glory of God bursting through the darkness. And we won't be deceived by surface level appearances. When our hearts are trained by the transcendent truth, we become indomitable, able to resist the debilitating fear and dehumanizing hatred of evil. And I pray that we believe this and burn bright with, with hard-won hope. The hard-won hope of the gospel of our crucified Christ, of our resurrected Christ.
In the equipping course I led on Sunday mornings earlier this year, the book we studied together had this line that stuck with me. It said, the Christian may write over every attack of nature, Satan, or sin, the words of Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Which is a reference back to the story of Joseph in Genesis, who spoke those words to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph knew how big his God is, and it shaped his heart. And the same is true of the Apostle Paul. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote of his affliction that he called the thorn in the flesh, saying it was a messenger of Satan. Yet he says it was given to him to keep him humble and free from conceit. I love that because Satan certainly did not want to produce greater godliness in Paul. He wanted to harass him and weaken him. But God said, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul believed that God was working for his good, even in the things that made him cry out. Maybe especially then. Paul even when it seems like God isn't answering prayers like Paul's. Because Paul prayed three times for that thorn in the flesh to be removed, and it wasn't. And it reminds me of two other apostles, Peter and James. You remember what happened in, in Acts with them? These two apostles were both imprisoned and both fervently prayed for by the disciples. Two of the inner circle One gets miraculously delivered by an angel. We love to tell that story. The other gets his head chopped off. And God was working in both situations. This is what we're called to believe. The Bible tells us both of those stories. Same Bible. Nearly side by side. If we were trying to paint some rosy depiction of the faith, it would just tell us about Peter and leave James out of it. But it doesn't because this is our amazing faith that God is working in both. And when you know this, it will fortify you. Even when it doesn't, he doesn't seem to be answering prayers. He is working in some deeper providential way. Believing this will be a ballast in your soul. A ballast is the weight that holds a ship in the water so it doesn't just like pop out like a cork and become unstable and then sink. You've got to have this weight of truth as a spiritual ballast, making you stable and secure. The truth that he works in his hiddenness just as much as in his dramatic intervention. You can look at the grave then, and you can say, try as you might, grave. Though you slay me, you will inadvertently exalt me. Because I have a God who can turn death into resurrection including all the little daily deaths we die. But our God, our God, he doesn't commit or create evil or pride or maliciousness or foolishness, but he is too great to be hindered by it. That's what we believe. He overrules it and overwhelms it and arranges it so that evil eventually destroys itself and serves the ultimate good of his beloved. Believing this, then when you see a cross coming that you must bear, you say, come on. 
Come on, cross. My God has shown me the truth about you. He has turned you from a symbol of shame and torture and cruelty and death into a symbol of hope and healing and love recognized around the world. God has purposes. And often, until it's over, we can't figure out exactly what he's doing. He's too big. He's orchestrating too much for us to fully know. But we know him. We know his gospel. We know how deeply he loves us and how passionately and powerfully he works for our good and he, how he is working for glory, even in the darkest days. Jesus has shown us he is the ballast in our soul. But Jeremiah shows not only his sovereign goodness and, and wisdom and how that extends even over evil, but he also shows us his justice and how he confronts evil. Saying of Babylon in verse 9, her judgment has reached up to heaven. And if you look down a couple verses, in verse 11 says, the Lord's purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. So God will not let evil and arrogance and idolatry that's pervasive in Babylon go unpunished. They are accountable to him, whether they acknowledge him or not. And this truth regarding God's justice and judgment, it satisfies a deep longing within us. To show you this, I want you to hear from as different people as a, a secular TV show creator, a Croatian theologian, and a singer-songwriter. So first, there's this TV show called The Good Place. Okay, it's a hilarious, if you haven't seen it, it's hilarious, insightful, often insightful show about moral philosophy of all things and, and, and uh, from a secular perspective though. But it gives humorous depictions of different godless approaches to being good. And ultimately, I believe it shows that how all of it is either empty or broken without God. But as you can tell, it's not your ordinary sitcom. And I listened to an interview with the, the creator of the show about this, Mike Schur. And he was asked, why did you want to make a show about being good? And Mike Schur's response sums up the intuition of justice that we all have because we were made as images of God. But even as a secular person, maybe because he's a uh, doesn't, not a religious person. He says it so clearly. Listen, listen to his response. It's kind of long, but it's so good. He says, everywhere you look, you will find people in every scenario who simply behave in a way that indicates they think the rules don't apply to them. And that drives me up a wall. It always has. The sort of impetus for this show was, what if somebody's keeping score? It's a kind of fantasy of mine. Because the nightmare for a person like me who's obsessed with rules is that it doesn't matter. That we're here on earth as organic creatures milling around, bumping into each other, and then at the end of the day, at some point, your cord is snipped and you return to organic matter on earth and nothing you did actually means anything. You cut the line, you cheated on your taxes, you treated people badly, and it didn't matter. You just got away with it. People getting away with it is the thing I'm fighting against with this show. Because the entire premise of the show is everything, every little thing you did mattered. And it's just my way of trying to enact a post-life world that I hope exists in some way. I hope it matters. I hope that the people who pull onto the shoulder when there's heavy traffic and just whiz by everybody because they think they don't have to wait and they think the rules don't apply to them, I hope it matters that they did that in some small way. 
And I, I laughed out loud when he said the part about that it was his fantasy that somebody's keeping score, like it's a new idea he had. It is not a new idea. There has always been a judge. Mike sure is not alone in being repulsed by the prospect of people just getting away with injustice. We all have this righteous indignation within us because we are made in the image of the judge. And our most sane, we hope in his justice and his judgment and in his vengeance. And this is the root of the Christian ethic to overcome evil with good. To, to bless rather than curse. As this, listen to Romans 12. It says, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Amen. So it's not that vengeance is wrong. It's that vengeance is God's. A Croatian theologian with an awesome name, Miroslav Volf, he writes about this with an important insight because he's seen the violence in the Balkans. And he said, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine judgment will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that belief will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. He's saying essentially it's only privileged, rich, liberal Westerners who think that God refusing to judge would result in anything less than terror. Those who experience the kinds of things that most humans around the world and throughout history have experienced, they need to hope in divine vengeance. Otherwise, they will be sucked into the cycle of retribution and destruction and violence. Human longing to make people pay is almost overwhelming. And if there's a way out of the cycle, it must come from above. We must pray with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson has a really great song about this called Rise Up. The song says this, Every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love will one day crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Because he will rise up. In the end, he will rise up in the end. I know you need a savior. He's patient in his anger, but he will rise up in the end. Listen to that song today if you get a chance. It will give you chills of hope. Peterson is talk, talking primarily about final judgment, but he gives previews, God does, before then, like he did with Babylon. And, but more than just a preview, has come of this final judgment, has rushed back into history. God's own justice and wrath has rained down. And it has done so in a most unexpected way. 
The sacrifice of the Son of God was not mercy at the expense of justice. It was the fulfillment and satisfaction of justice. When we see the reality of our just judge the way Jeremiah did, and the way he reveals him in this book, we begin to understand that sin is a crime against him. He is the offended party. And Christ, in Christ, the one that we have wronged, comes to bear the penalty of the crime himself. Jesus fully bore the wrath of God for our sin, satisfying God's justice fully. And God forms a union between us so that in a real and mysterious way, we died that death too. In his death, we died in order that we may be reborn just as he was resurrected. Our final judgment was taken by Christ. It was an inbreaking of God's justice on evil, on our own evil. And it alters the ultimate justice we long for and pray for. Because in Christ, we long for our enemies to die. To really die a deeper death than they deserve. To die the same death we have died. To die with Christ. For it is only in such a death, through this radical tearing down of their soul, that they can be rebuilt and reborn as a new man. No longer as an enemy, but as our brother. And this compassionate hope for renewal towards our enemies was even present in Jeremiah. Notice verse 8 and 9. He says, wail for Babylon. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. And here we see a deeper insight and a bigger perspective of what God was up to. He is using Babylon to discipline and purify his people But in that, it was not just for their benefit, but also to give hope to the nations, even to Babylon. If you look back at at Jeremiah 12 sometime, he says, God says of the nations that he exiled his people to, he says this, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. So what he's saying there is he sends his people as salt and light in hope that the roles will be reversed because these nations have taught his people how to worship idols. And now that he is purifying his people, they can teach the nations how to worship the one true God. And if they listen and learn, he will build them up in the midst of his people. It's an incredible promise. And Jeremiah, if you remember, back in chapter 1, when he was called, he was called as a prophet to whom? To the nations. Chapters 46 through 51 are his messages to those various nations, mostly about judgment, but they often end with a brief message about hope for that nation. Meaning that this judgment was in service of salvation. God is aiming at the good of these nations. God cares about all people, and he always has. And this often gets ignored by the ethnocentricity of of Israel, who thinks that they are all that matter. A prime example of this is Jonah. If, If you know the book of Jonah, he didn't even want to carry God's warning to Nineveh. But if you read that book carefully, it's because he knew his God was so merciful. 
He didn't want to see God's kindness extended to his enemies. But this is who God is. Jonah was right. His God is a God of mercy and grace. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He extends mercy even to Babylon. And if we want to be aligned with ultimate reality, we too have to have his heart for the nations. To pray with Amos again, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, but to have our prayer in our that prayer shaped by the gospel so that the, the rolling justice we are praying for is the sin-covering blood of Christ. And that ever-flowing righteousness is Christ's own righteousness in the heart of renewed Christians from every tribe and nation. And may we be used as salt and light to preserve and illuminate in this great mission. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are bigger and more awesome and wonderful than we can now comprehend. I pray that we will have awe and wonder in keeping with who you really are. And may we have humility as well. Humble us and give us faith to trust your sovereign plan and hope in your justice. You have shown us your heart and your grace. And I pray that we would let the gospel grow our faith and our love and our courage. And we pray with Christ. Amen.